0: The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Second Peter chapter three. I don't remember how long ago this was, but one time we were washing a a large blanket or a large comforter uh, in our washing machine. And in one of the cycles, it shifted to where it was all on one side. And the washing machine just started shaking violently. I thought there was an earthquake that that was happening. You know, when things get lopsided or out of balance like that, something's wrong. And it can create problems. It can create pain. It can be dangerous. If you've got a car that's out of alignment, your car could start shaking or it might pull you to one side of the road or the other. And that's a dangerous thing. There's even something in the health and fitness world known as muscle imbalance. Muscle imbalance occurs most of the time because of some repetitive movement, or maybe you focus too much on one muscle group and neglect others, and when that happens, it can create weaknesses in certain areas. It can lead to nagging injuries and chronic pain and things like that. But when everything's working together in balance, When there's harmony and when things are all all working together as they should, it's wonderful. The same is true in our Christian walk. There needs to be a beautiful balance between living for the Lord and learning about the Lord. One author used these terms, and I like the way he put it. He said, uh, the moral realm and the mental realm. And he noted that we need to be continually advancing in both of these areas. We don't want an imbalance one way or the other. And Peter is going to end his letter that we've been looking at today by commanding us to grow both in grace and in knowledge. And so we're going to focus on verse 14 through 18 today as we finish up this study, but I'm also going to... Uh, relate it back to many of the things we've seen so far in this letter because these final five verses really just summarize much of what he's taught throughout. So look at verse 14 through 18. Peter says, "'Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation.'" Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We're going to actually start in verse 18 and then work our way back. But in verse 18, Peter commands us to grow in grace and knowledge. Not just one area or the other, but in both. And this word grow here, it can be used of plants growing, flowers growing, and things like that. But I read one author this week who who made this point. He said we should not grow in spurts. This is a continual command an ongoing process in our lives, not a seasonal one if we apply it to plants growing. It encompasses every day of our life. Think about it this way. There should be no winter in the garden of your Christian life. It should always be harvest time, an ever-increasing growth Say, Brother Matt, I don't know that that describes me. I don't know if it describes me either. So let's thank God for His grace when we're not growing like we should, but we are commanded to always be growing. Think of it this way we never outgrow the command to grow. The final verse that we just sang talked about teach me thy way until the race is run. We never stop learning and living and growing for God. We never arrive, so to speak. Paul wrote in Philippians that he hadn't even arrived yet. So if the Apostle Paul hadn't, quote, made it, we would probably still have ability to grow. And Peter gave these two areas of growth, not just one while neglecting the other, but grace and knowledge. Do not neglect to grow in grace that's that living or that moral aspect of growth. Grace changes the way you live. Grace changes who you are. It changes how you respond to other people. It changes the decisions you make. We should be continually growing and increasing for the better the way we respond in our lives to the grace that God has shown to us. If grace doesn't change the way you live and your character and your decisions, something's wrong. But when we grow in grace, we separate ourselves from the moral filth and the corruption of this world. We live moral, we live upright, we live honestly, different from the sinful world around us. That's a byproduct of producing fruit in our lives. Or maybe I would say the fruit is a byproduct of growing in grace. Grow in grace, but don't neglect knowledge either, right? Always grow in knowledge, Notice he specifically says here the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a little interesting that he didn't say just grow in knowledge of the Bible. Don't throw anything at me yet. Stay with me. Aren't there a lot of people who know more about the Bible than they do about Jesus? Listen to what Jesus told a group of Jews who diligently studied the scriptures but didn't believe him. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the central theme of the Bible. And if we study the Bible and miss Jesus, we've missed the whole point. Those ancient Jews did that. Now, of course, growing in the knowledge of Jesus involves reading and studying the Word of God, but we don't just want to learn the Bible academically or scholastically, but we want to learn it and grow in our understanding of our Savior. That involves coming to church, that involves hearing from teachers and preachers, it involves studying and spending time in His Word and in prayer. It takes some diligence. But why would we not want to increase our our understanding of Jesus? And so we're commanded to grow in both of these realms or both of these areas. And we don't want to have an imbalance. One writer said, knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon. And grace without knowledge can be very shallow. But when we combine grace and knowledge, We have a marvelous tool for building our lives and for building our church. And on another level, I believe there's some truth in saying that we cannot genuinely grow in one area without the other anyway, because grace and knowledge work together. They're not enemies. They're not mutually exclusive here. They don't work against each other. Living for the Lord and learning about the Lord go together. How could we separate what we learn about Jesus Christ from how we then turn and live our own lives? We can't divorce those from one another. Do you remember what James said in the first chapter of his letter? That if we hear the word but don't do it, he said, You're just deceiving yourself. So what we learn and know about Jesus Christ should then turn into grace and fruitfulness in our own lives as well. These go together. And that's been the whole point of the letter, to grow in grace and knowledge. If you'll look back at chapter 1, I'll remind you of a few things that Peter mentioned there. He began in verse 3 and 4 by teaching us that God has given us everything we need to live for him in this wicked world. He's given us everything we stand in need of. And then he commanded us to take a living for him seriously. Specifically in verse 5 through 8, he commanded us to be diligent to make every effort to add these other Christian virtues to our faith. And I think that parallels growing in grace. That's what it looks like. But notice the connection in verse 8 to knowledge. In verse 8 he said, For if these things be in you, And abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a valid question to ask Are you truly, genuinely growing in the knowledge of Jesus if it's not manifesting itself in your life through fruitfulness? Or are you just more like those Jews that Jesus talked to that could quote scripture? They just didn't believe it. They just didn't live it. Someone whose life is unfruitful and not growing in grace, not using the knowledge that they are learning about Jesus or not using what they've been given about God, in verse 9, that person can become spiritually nearsighted, having forgotten what God did for him when he cleansed him of his sins. That's a tragic way to live as a Christian. Not only do you have nearsighted, nearsightedness looking back, okay, struggling to see what God did for you when he saved you, but you also struggle to look forward in the other direction and remember that Jesus Christ is coming back and let that motivate your living. As Christians, we don't want to be nearsighted in either direction. The cross shouldn't be fuzzy and the return shouldn't be blurry. Do you want to be an unfruitful Christian when Jesus Christ returns? No, absolutely not. We want to be fruitful Christians who have grown in grace and knowledge and receive, look at verse 11, a triumphant reception. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, look back at verse 14 of chapter 3 and notice how he ends the letter almost mirroring this idea of our reception when he comes again. In verse 14, he said, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. What such things? What he just mentioned, that the Lord is going to return, that this universe will be purged with fire, and he will create a new one, seeing that you look for those things. Be diligent. There's that same word again of making every effort. That ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Since we are armed with the knowledge of Christ's return, why would we not give our all to live our lives growing in grace and knowledge so that we will be found in him in peace and blamelessness and spotless? That's that rich reception into his kingdom that Peter's talked about in verse 11 of chapter 1. He comes full circle. When he talks here about being found in him in peace, without spot and blameless, he isn't talking about salvation here. It's not that peaceful or blameless standing or or position or relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. That comes when you're saved. That comes through faith, and nothing can change that. Once you repent and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior... You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and nothing in the universe can change that, not even your own failures. But here, Peter's referring to our walk, our lives, our moral character. And in the context, it's how do you want to be living when Christ returns? Are you growing in and walking in grace? Are we... Using what he has given us, coupling that with our own resolve and diligence, to live for him and to rise above the filth of this world? Or are we living more like those false teachers of chapter 2 who throw away ethics and throw away morality? How do you want to be living when Jesus Christ returns? I hope you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But you know, each day he does not return. Verse 15, Peter says, that's salvation. And that's not only to be applied to unbelievers. Now, absolutely it can be and should be. If you glance back up at verse 9, that's what that verse was all about. God's patience is allowing another day for people to repent and believe him so that they can find room in their hearts for repentance. So absolutely we can apply God's patience to the salvation of unbelievers. But think about it this way in your life. We should also view God's patience as salvation in the sense that we're being given one more chance to manifest our salvation. It's another day to live for him. Do you want Christ to return? Absolutely. But if he doesn't, I've got another day to live for him. God's long-suffering is giving you another chance to be fruitful. Giving you another day to grow. Giving you another day to advance. And that's something Peter and Paul both taught. And if you look in verse 15 and 16, he, he brings up Paul and Peter and Paul, they both wrote and encouraged holy and fruitful living from saved people as they await Christ's coming. Notice the middle of verse 15 again. Peter said, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned, and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction." There's a few things to point out here, but first I want you to just notice that Peter labels Paul as a beloved brother. I love that for two reasons. One, do you remember one time Paul had to rebuke Peter for his hypocrisy? Peter knew that God had torn down any divide between Jew and Gentile and that we can be one in Christ. And Peter knew that, but then when he was around other Jews, he wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. And Paul rebuked him to his face. He withstood him to his face. But that confrontation did not sever their bond. Ultimately, Paul was doing that for Peter's own good and for the good of the gospel. And Peter understood that. And here he calls Paul a beloved brother, not that sorry old guy who yelled at me one time in public. I don't know if he yelled at him, but he withstood him. Just a side application. If that happens in your life where a fellow Christian, quote, puts you in your place... Be humble enough to receive that admonition. Don't view that person as your enemy. Assuming that their motivation was genuine and you needed their words, be thankful that you had a brother or sister in Christ who loved you enough and cared enough about you and your church and the gospel to point something out. Paul did that to Peter. Peter. And Peter still views him as a beloved brother in Christ. Maybe that's part of the reason he does view him as a beloved brother in Christ. And the second thing I want to point out about this idea of Paul and Peter being these beloved brothers, there's no rivalry between Peter and Paul, unquestionably the two biggest personalities in early Christianity. Peter and Paul, they're on the same team. I don't know if the same thing can be said about a lot of preachers and pastors and churches today. Brother Doug, Brother Connor, myself, we're not competing with anyone. And North Bryant Church has no rivals. Let's do what we're supposed to do. And let's leave the blessings up to God. Paul said it this way. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Peter and Paul had no rivalry. They were both working for the kingdom of God. They were beloved brothers. The second great thing overall here about Peter's words is not just how he viewed Paul, but how he viewed Paul's writings. In verse 15, he mentioned that Paul's wisdom was not just maybe natural wisdom, but it was God-given wisdom. God gave this wisdom to Paul. And in verse 16, he even mentioned that Paul's letters were already viewed alongside other scriptures. Peter and other Christians had already noted the authority of Paul's letters. We're only in the middle of the first century. But that's how quickly people were recognizing God's inspiration of the New Testament. we need to understand that Christians did not decide what letters made up the New Testament. God did. Christians simply recognized that, accepted that. They noted which books were God-given and God-inspired. And here we are just in the middle of the first century, and Paul's writings are already being accepted as authoritative scripture. That's great. And the next thing to point out is hilarious to me. Peter, who is himself being inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes that some of Paul's inspired writings are hard to understand. So think about this. If Peter's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that, then is it true? Yep. Some of Paul's writings are tough. His his theology is deep. His practical applications are are challenging to us. Paul doesn't always write on on a low level, does he? But the other side of this that's funny to me is that I want to look at Peter and say, who are you to claim that Paul's tough to understand? Your own writings aren't that simple either, buddy. And we saw that in this letter in chapter 2. Do you remember one of the examples he gave us about how you can rest and know that God can judge evil? One of the examples he gave us was the angels that sinned and God has reserved them in this Tartarus place of hell reserved in chains for judgment. That's a very difficult and debated and complicated example. And even in chapter 3, he just finished talking about, you know, just the fiery judgment that ends the universe and the, uh, you know, eternal ages ushered in. No big deal. That's a complicated thing. But Paul's tough to understand. Peter, look in the mirror, right? When we read this, though, We need to understand that God did not give us his word to confuse us, but to reveal himself to us. We have a buffet of spiritual food here. Doesn't mean we get to pick and choose what we want. I don't mean buffet like that. We have a feast of spiritual food here. Maybe I should say it that way. Some of it's milk. Some of it's meat. Some truths are deeper and more difficult than others. And that's why we must use good, solid hermeneutics when we read and when we study and interpret the Bible. That's why you hear uh, good preachers talk about word meanings and context and the culture of the day and, and praying for the Holy Spirit to guide us as we read. Because we want to grow in the knowledge, as Peter commanded in verse 18, and because not everybody does that. Not everybody properly interprets the Bible. Notice verse 16 at the very end of the verse. Some that are unlearned and unstable rest them. The word unlearned and unstable here, these words, it gives a description of people who are both um, ignorant and unstable. They're not learned. They're not grounded or established in the truth. And so they, they rest scripture, not R-E-S-T, they don't rest upon it, but W-R-E-S-T, they, they almost like wrestle with it. Some of your translations may use the word twist or distort, and those are both good translations. This word here, though, is actually pretty graphic and powerful. This was the word used in reference to the torture device where someone is yanked and twisted and their arms and legs pulled apart until they are snapped out of socket. That's this word. Some people do that to the Word of God, they torture the Bible. The false teachers of chapter 2 fit that mold. They take God's inspired truth and they twist it to fit their own agenda. They yank it out of context to make it say something it doesn't say, but they just want it to say that. And they, they do all that until it's distorted and it's misinterpreted. One example of that happening today is that some groups now claim that the Bible does not speak against homosexuality. Those places in the Bible where you thought it did, you just missed something. That's a distortion of the Word of God. And there's others, but that's an easy example for us to understand. People twist Scripture, they take it out of context until it is completely yanked out of socket and tortured. One of the most dangerous things in this world is Scripture if it's taken out of context. But if you destroy the Bible in that way, you're really only destroying yourself. Notice the end of the verse. They do this unto their own destruction. They're not really destroying the Bible, are they? That's not possible. God's word stands the test of time. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. Peter just talked about that. But my words will not pass away. But their destructive interpretations of the Bible will ultimately lead to their own destruction. And that's a lot of what chapter 2 dealt with, right? Those false teachers whom God will judge. Peter said in 2 verse 12 that they would perish in their own corruption. False teachers do torture scripture and it will lead to their destruction. But if you remember from chapter 2, Peter also warned us that they'll be successful. False teachers twisting scripture, that's going to be something that a lot of people just flock to. But we've been given a warning, right? Look at verse 17 again. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before. You've been warned. Then beware. Beware. Lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. This word beware, some, some of your translations say take care or, or, or don't be caught off guard. That's a good translation. It refers this word to watching something, guarding it, keeping uh, watch. It was used to describe how Jesus kept his disciples safe from harm while he was here on this earth. Same word used in Luke when Jesus was born of the, of the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And here the idea is for us to guard ourselves so that we are not led astray by the seductive, torturous, twisted teachings of false doctrine and the false teachers. God forbid that a genuine Christian be led astray by a false teacher. But it can happen and it does happen. Thank the Lord you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your stability. And that's what he says at the end of verse 17. Notice, and fall from your own steadfastness. This word steadfastness or stability, he just used the negative of this word in verse 16 when he described the false teachers as unstable. They are unstable. Don't let them take your stability from you. He used another form of this word back in chapter 1 when he told us he wanted us to be established in the truth. So Peter is saying here that if if a true Christian is led astray by false teachers, he or she has not fallen from salvation, but has fallen from being grounded in the truth, fallen from having that stability. And if that happens, you will lose assurance and peace and fruitfulness. So guard yourself. You say, how? The warning's great, but how do I guard myself? Back to verse 18 now. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's it. Since false teaching exists, since some people torture Scripture, we need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Yes, that takes the Bible. That's why Peter urged us at the end of chapter 1 to cling to it like like a light in darkness. Right before chapter 2 when he gave us this lengthy warning and description of false teachers. Since false teachers prey on weak and immature Christians, we must grow and be established in the truth because knowing the truth is the safeguard against error. The other side of the coin is, though, don't neglect to grow in grace. Grow in that fruitfulness in your life, in that cultivating of Christian character that he talked about in chapter 1. Grace and knowledge work together. We don't want the imbalance, like the washing machine that that was overloaded and shaking, or a car that's pulling you to one side, or a bodybuilder who only works on his biceps. Imbalances can create problems, pain, they can be dangerous. If we don't grow in knowledge, we're in danger of being led astray by false teachers. It happens to so many unrooted Christians. It doesn't need to happen to any one of us. If we don't grow in grace, though, we're in danger of being unfruitful servants. What happens when you put it all together? What happens when you grow in grace and knowledge? The end of verse 18. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. When our lives are increasing, growing... Both in grace and in knowledge, in our morality and our mentality, so to speak. Jesus Christ is glorified. So let's follow this command to grow in both areas for the glory of the one who died for us and who is coming again soon. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, You are not ready for his return. Second, Peter has given us proof that his return is not made up. Peter saw the preview. He's coming again. And if you don't know him, you're not prepared for that day. The only safe place to be in this universe is in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Jesus, I pray that you'll repent and trust him today as your savior. He will forgive you. He will save you. And then, and if you've done that, constantly grow in grace and knowledge until he returns or until he calls us home. Father, we're thankful for for your word, for inspiring Peter to write this. And we pray that individually and as a a church that we would grow in grace in our lives and that we would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Help us to always be mindful of the cross and the second coming each day of our lives and every time we meet as a church, Father. And I pray that you would use us for your kingdom. Help us to water, to teach, to preach, to witness. And we ask you to give the growth so that you get the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.